Well, good morning, Grace Vineyard. And well, actually, technically, it's not morning. It's Thursday at 11pm when I'm recording this. But by the time you see this, good morning to you. I hope you're doing well. And welcome to another Zoom service uh, uh, here at Grace Vineyard. Now, for those of you who are perhaps joining us for the first time today, or perhaps you've been dipping in and out of these Zoom sessions, we as a church have been going through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, learning about what happened when, you know, after Jesus died and crucified and died, rose again, and then, you know, made several appearances to the early churches, early followers, and commissioned them to go out and spread that gospel. We're learning about what happened next in the founding and spreading of the early church. So we've learned in Acts 1 how, you know, Jesus tells, you know, tells the gang, tells the disciples, tells his followers that there will become one who will fill them and empower them. That's the Holy Spirit he's talking about. In Acts 2, we hear about Pentecost, it's when Pentecost happened, when suddenly all the believers are filled with this wonderful Holy Spirit and they go out and they preach to people who see this change and 3,000 are added to their number in that one day. In Acts 3, we hear about Peter and John and how they were empowered by a Holy Spirit and healed a lame man. In Acts 4, we hear about Peter and John, how they're taken before the religious councils and they're, and they're told to stop, stop preaching about this risen Jesus, to which they say, we cannot stop, don't care if we're imprisoned, we're going to continue. Acts 5, we hear the really interesting and slightly terrifying story of Ananias and Sapphira when they um, withhold some money, which should be given to the church, and of course they're struck down. Uh, dead because of their false witness and their false testimonial. We hear in Acts 6 how um, there's, you know, there's trouble in the camp and you have these religious, these several religious groups, you have the sort of Jewish converts and the Greek converts and there's a feeling that there's, that some of their material needs aren't being met and you suddenly see the church move from not just spiritual needs but actually moving to help felt needs of the community. In Acts 7, we hear about Stephen and we learn about him being stoned. This is when the persecution gets really real now. And um, we hear about Stephen being stoned. Eight, which is what we've just come from in the last week, is when we learn when the persecution really kicks in. And it's in chapter eight, you know, I'm covering chapter nine today. It's in chapter eight that we're introduced to this interesting character called Saul. We learn that there's this very zealous fellow called Saul who is going from house to house and causing people, you know, and, and ordering people to take these new believers, these Christians, and put them in prison because he sees them as blasphemers. He sees them, he's a very zealous Jewish man, and he sees this, this new group of believers as as blasphemy against the, the religious tradition that he's come from. So he's very zealous and he's kind of pitched as the baddie of, <laughs> of the book, of certainly for the first half of the book of Acts. Now, I'm going to be taking you through Acts 9 today, so we're going to dig into this, and we're going to learn a little bit more about this Saul character. We're going to learn a bit, little bit about who he was, what happened to him, and what he did as a result of what happened to him. And of course, Acts 9 is where Paul's very famous Damascus conversion happens. So before we start, let's pray, then we'll dig into the text, and then let's um, let the, the, the text speak to us. You know, it's really rich. I was really, um, I've spoken on Saul's conversion before, and usually I like to do sort of three points. You know, you tend to have three key points that you can hang a sermon or a preach on. But actually, I just find this whole story of what, you know, happened to Saul so rich that pretty much every sentence has something thought-provoking and something rich and valuable to talk about. So I thought we could just work through it as a, 
you know, as a congregation today, just line by line, and I'll just take out some of the things which leapt out to me when I was preparing for this. And then perhaps if we're doing group work after this, you can dig in and see what from this spoke to you. So let's pray and then let's dig in. So dear Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can just be here today as a church online together as a fellowship. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is present with us, whether we are next to each other physically and can touch and be physically present with one another, or whether we're doing this over a Zoom. You are still with us. You are still a God who occupies all parts of time and space and is Lord of all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for blessing each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord, that we are members of this great and wonderful church. And thank you, Lord, for just blessing us with your scriptures and acts. The examples of your early apostles and followers are so inspirational to us. And Lord, we thank you so much that here in Britain, we do not even experience a tenth of what your early church experienced when it comes to pain and tribulation and um, persecution. Thank you so much, Lord, for the proof that you are an active God and you can change anyone, even a murderous zealot whose heart was against you, even though he thought it was for you, called Paul. Lord, you can act and change people. And that's a great encouragement of chapter nine. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So gang, let us now dig into this first. I'm going to read this and then we're going to go through it a little bit line by line and just see what leaps out. But Saul's conversion, and there's a little bit later about Peter, but he's already had a bit of a look in with our sermon. So I'm going to actually ignore Peter's part at the end. And we're just going to focus on what happened to Saul of Tarsus. So Saul's conversion, chapter nine. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Remember in chapter eight, he was going out persecuting and ordering the persecution of the early church, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, followers of Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to leave Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple called, named Ananias. The Lord called to him in the vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, and their kings, and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night. I love this part. It's mad. And lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved freely, about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but when they tried to kill him, but then they, they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Now, there's a bit more about Peter, but like I said, he's had his time in the spotlight. Just a few more lines about what Peter was getting up to at this time. We're going to focus today on Mr. Saul of Tarsus. Now, to appreciate Saul's conversion, and you, you know, you hear people talk about you know a Damascus experience, to understand just how radical a change you know, what happened to Paul is you really have to understand who he was before he was converted. So Saul was born a Jew, born in Tarsus in Asia Minor, which is around basically the Syrian border. And in, in those days, Tarsus, where he was born, was a very distinguished city. It was distinguished particularly because it had a university. It was actually one of the three great universities in the ancient world. There was one in Athens, there's one in Alexandria, and the third great university was in Tarsus as a young boy. So he was very learned. That's the, the key theme you'll always understand with him. He was very learned, both in, I guess, what you call the secular arts. You know, he was a great debater and philosopher and learner, but also in the Jewish faith. And as a young boy, his family, and he talks about this, wanted him to study Judaism at the highest level. Hence, he learnt under a rabbi called Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And Gamaliel was the leader of the Sanhedrin, the great Jewish council in the first century. So Saul learned from the best of the best, the most Jewish of the Jewish. And he would have spent years whilst learning under this rabbi, memorising the Old Testament, arguing and debating the law of the Old Testament. So he would have been a razor sharp expert. And no doubt, as well, as, apart from just being an expert and often probably some of the worst people you can deal with in life are those who think they know it all. And the people, you know, who think they know everything and can't be told anything made him, as he says by his own lips, you know, made him very rigid, very traditional, very legalistic, very zealous, which isn't necessarily a bad thing and very pharisaical. And you can see it manifest over the last chapter. And I guess at the very beginning of this chapter, he just became zealous for the traditions of his fathers, for the Jewish faith, which, of course, Jesus came to fulfill and magnify and, and because it is the ultimate fulfillment through him. And the Jewish faith points to Jesus. But of course, there are many today, um, many of our Jewish brothers and sisters don't recognise this. And Paul was guilty of that. He, he loved the Lord in his way. And he loved the laws and statutes of, 
of God as revealed in the Old Testament, but he didn't recognize that the Old Testament wasn't was pointing to Jesus, the son of God, um, the second person of the Trinity. And he lost that. So he was a devout Jew of this kind of 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 Judaism. And he says this, he tells us in uh, Philippians, I've just had to write it down here. I have more right this is when he's really trying to explain how much of a, a sort of a, a, a jew he was he in like how you know sort of how zealous he was as a jewish person i have more so this is from philippians 3 i was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of israel of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of hebrews the most jewish person you can imagine in regard to the law a pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law faultless this was a man for whom it would have just been anathema. You could not believe anyone who would come over to the Christian faith because to him, someone like, you know, you know, these, these Christians who are professing Jesus as Lord was just completely away from who the sort of, you know, was just completely anathema to him. And yet we now know when we think of Paul, he's quite a hero to us, right? We understand that something happened to Paul, this man, this Saul, this zealous Jew, suddenly made him Apostle Paul. You know, he had a bit of a rebrand like Prince, the artist formerly known as Prince. Suddenly Saul became Paul and we know him as the author of 13 of through the 13 of the greatest books in the Bible, books that shape our theology and our understanding of the, the gospel in all its height and width and depth. We know, we recognise Paul as, you know, like a he's a missionary, a theologian, a teacher, a pastor, an evangelist, a preacher, an organiser, a leader, a thinker, a friend, you know, and basically history's most effective evangelist. So something, there's something which happened before, there's that kind of before and that after, and that's what's really exciting about Acts chapter 9, because that's where we see how does the Lord come into human history and what happens when someone, even someone as irredeemable as you can imagine, and many of you have people in your lives who you think are so far from the Lord, whether through their own zeal or self-righteousness, or because they're given over to other less religious sins, if that's such a thing, you think cannot be changed by the Lord. And yet the great encouragement of Acts 9 is that the Lord can and will change and use anyone, anyone. So let's have a little look now into Acts chapter 9 proper. Let's just going to go through it line by line and just see the kind of things that, because all scripture is profitable, really every sentence here, there's probably something interesting to say. So at the very beginning, we see here, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, so far, so Saul. This is what he's been doing in chapter eight. This is what others have been doing throughout the book of Acts. Persecutions are starting to happen and really bear down. And I have to even say, just from the outset here, as we you know, just as maybe just something for us to really appreciate, we do have it good here in the UK. We can sit here and you can read things about Christians suffering in public life or partic very particular persecutions or sometimes right not to publicly preach. And all these things are types of persecution and I'm not going to diminish that. But when we look at what happened to our forefathers in the faith and foremothers, frankly, just those have gone before us. Think about this men and women being dragged from their homes thrown and in prison and this is happening to our brothers and sisters across the world but here in Britain here in London here in Purley we're very fortunate that's completely alien the worst thing that we are persecuted against is our sense of embarrassment that's it that's really that's the biggest persecution we have is a sense that people might not think we're cool or think we're odd 
that's it. And so already I'm humbled and convicted just by reading these first four bits of narrative about Saul breathing murderous threats, because I think, how glad am I and how lucky are we at Grace Vineyard? No one is breathing out murderous threats against you. You're one of the Lord's disciples, just like Saul was going against, and yet no one's breathing murderous threats against you into that. I just think we can just open up chapter nine and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that the worst antagonist we have is our sense of embarrassment. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a, a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, the thing that jumped out to me when I read that sentence, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And this is profound and this is huge and not everyone suddenly sees a light from heaven. Many of you now, you know, as you read through this, you can probably think back to your own conversion stories. Some of you can probably point to a distinct moment in time. Others, it was more gradual. Uh, but you, here with Saul, you have this huge moment where there's a light from heaven which flashes around him and it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And here's the thing which I found fascinating about this sentence was me. Saul's been going around persecuting not literally Jesus, not Jesus, the God man that you could touch, you know, fully man, fully God. Not someone that Saul saw with his own eyes or could put his hand into his wounds like Doubting Thomas. But it says here, me. Saul's been persecuting actually the church and the really interesting thing is that Jesus is so at one with his church. Jesus is so twinned with it even though the bride and the groom are two separate entities and we're not Jesus but his, he has such an affinity with us, his church which are bearing his spirit that he says when you persecute Johnny for, without being egotistical or Mark or Jill or Brian, or, or Mike, or whomever, right? When you persecute, when you are persecuted for the gospel, when you suffer for the gospel, Jesus is in you and you're in him. And he sees, says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting the church, men and women living all around Damascus. Um, and yet Jesus says, when you're persecuting them, when you touch them, when you harm them, you're harming me. He sees you as him and he is you if you're in Christ. And that's both encouraging and also hugely profound. Jesus has such an affection for the church. He sees it as basically himself in this case. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my church? You may want to just think and marinate on that for a moment, that when a church is persecuted, you know, that we must speak kindly of the bridegroom, of you and the others in it, because Jesus sees him, you as in him. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. So Saul knew. Saul knew. And this is really f interesting thing about this encounter is that Saul, although he's been blinded, you know, he talks a lot about scales dropping from his eyes. He's been blinded literally in this case and also figuratively, you know, with his zeal for the law and the statutes of God in the Old Testament, which aren't bad and aren't to be poo-pooed, but see their fulfillment to Jesus. He's blinded to who Jesus is. And yet he has this immediate experience and knows it's the Lord God speaking. Whether you realise, whether you thought of it as God the Father, you know, like a very Old Testament view, or understood that this was the Son, the second person at Trinity. But he says, I am Jesus, Jesus replied, whom you are persecuting. Now go and now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood their speech as they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Now this also is really interesting, right? This You have this massive experience where Paul, Paul or Saul, as he's known here, has this one-to-one -one experience with the Lord and yet others don't see it. And I think there's a lot you can take from that. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, Jill sort of asked a few people in the church to talk about how does the Lord speak to you? And we heard about, you know, various people spoke about, you know, for them, it might be 
you know, a quiet word. For others, it's when they open up the Bible. For others, they have to, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know I remember Mark Stoneham saying, he, you know, he had visions or, you know, he's had visions in his time where he's had a very clear word from the Lord. The Lord speaks to each and every one of us, you listening to this today, in very different ways. And the way he speaks to you isn't necessarily the way he speaks to other people and other people don't need to hear it in the same way as they do you. There are those of you, the Lord has never in an audible voice ever said anything to me. But there are some of you listening today who can say a hand on heart that it wasn't the chicken tikka masala talking. You heard the Lord speak audibly and wonderfully into your life and no one can take you away from that. Saul had something like that. Obviously he was struck blind, so maybe it wasn't so wonderful and hopefully none of you uh, are suddenly, uh, you know, start start getting, you know, cataracts from the Lord as a punishment. But basically, you can see that um, the way the Lord speaks to people is very particular and not everyone will share that same experience. He has a very particular affinity with his people. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard a sound but did not see anyone. So there's just something there about how the Lord speaks to us can be very different and um, to each and every one of us. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand. And wow, and I'm so glad that the Lord, who can do anything and can make someone blind if he wishes, doesn't operate like that with us anymore. Certainly no one in our fellowship. So they led him by hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, a vision. So that's another way. So one's an audible voice and one's a vision in this case. Uh, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, so you see, the, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What I want to take from this little extract is, what I like is, well, I don't know if I like it, probably speaks to my character a lot is, Ananias answers back. Now, I'm not saying you should answer back when the Lord speaks. I'm just saying I'm glad that the Lord indulged Ananias and didn't make him get blind as well, right? Because Ananias does kind of answer back, right? He says, hmm... Lord, I like my life, um, you know, but, and I don't want to die. Do I really have to do this, right? He kind of pulls almost like a, um, a Jonah with a Ninevite when he's like, no, thank you, God. I'm happy with my situation. And the Lord just, the Lord entertains him. He's in conversation with him. And I, I think, you know, joking aside, I'm being a little bit flippant. It's wonderful to know that you have a Lord who is sovereign over all. And in one moment can make you blind and crush you, frankly, whether you're a believer or not, if he chooses to for his glory. But he gets in conversation with his beloved because Ananias, he loves Ananias and Ananias loves him. He says, look, go. This man is my chosen instrument proclaim, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. So he doesn't even really remonstrate, but just tells him, listen, stop it. Please just go. And I love that us as believers can have these conversations with God where we wrestle with what he tells us. Now, we should obey and we should obey willingly and happily and joyfully. But I love that the Lord gives us that breadth and that room to say, Hey, Lord, you know, I'm a little scared. Lord, are you sure you want me to do that? Lord, you're not know, to, to introduce that and that he converses with us, that he's a God who communicates with his people. The other thing here, which I find really 
meat is, is where he says, go, this man, Paul, or, or Saul as he's known here, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's actually quite a lot happening here. I guess the first part is, which I love is the whole choosing aspect. God has sovereignly elected, and before even Saul was an apple in his parents' eye, chose him and knew before the foundations of the world that he was going to use this guy who killed Christians happily, who delighted in bloodshed, who delighted in persecuting them, who was so far away from the things of the Lord proper. And yet God said, that's my guy. I'm going to choose Saul, the mass murderer. Saul, the guy who killed people. Saul, the guy who was present at the stoning of Stephen. It's these, the, the economy of the Lord is not as easy as we sometimes try and make it often. If you're a you know, often you kind of think that things are pretty hard and fast and clear cut. If you're a good person, if you're moralistic, if you do the right things, the Lord's going to use you. The Lord's going to choose you. The Lord's going to use you. And there is, it is right to be those things, right? It's very clear in the Bible that there are many instructions, particularly for church leadership, that you must align with certain behaviours and practices and carry yourself well. But I also find it remarkable when, um, that you see a God here who just reaches in, who just picks the most unlikely of characters. And it's something you see all the way through the Bible and one that should hearten you and I, because frankly, as I like keep to tell people all the time, we're Paul as well. You know, we might not have murdered anyone like he did, but we've murdered people in our hearts. And in the New Testament, it says, if you hate your brother or have a say racker against him, you've killed him in your heart. And all of us have frankly had harsh words to say about each other or our neighbours or people at work. So we're all little Pauls as well, even if we haven't gone so far as killing entire you know, genociding entire religious sects. So, and yet, and yet, even with that all counting against him, the Lord said he's my chosen instrument. I think the second thing though, and this one's a little less nice to dwell on, is the fact that God says he must suffer for my name. And I think, especially because we come from the vineyard tradition, we're very good and big on God healing, on God making a way, and God's for us, and God's thing. But actually, the way of the Lord, it says quite frankly, you know, that, you know, Jesus warns us that people will hate you. If you're doing the job, if you're doing your job as a disciple properly, even though it does say, you know, live amongst believers on, on good terms with as many people as you can. If you're doing, if you're doing Jesus, if you're doing life, if you're doing church properly, you're going to suffer. You are going to suffer. Now, you might not suffer stoning like our friend Stephen. You might not get crucified upside down. I can't remember which one of the disciples that happened to ultimately. You might not, you know, if you look at all the disciples, they all had pretty horrible ends. That might not happen to you. It might not happen to us in this generation. But if we're faithfully proclaiming Jesus and making people uncomfortable, we have to get used to the fact that there is suffering and it's suffering ordained by the Lord. Like he literally says, here's my guy, probably the, you know, the, the best evangelist in the world, and he's going to suffer for my name. And that's not an accident. It's not a... Uh, a strange quirk of history the Lord says I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for my name the Lord has commanded this and commended it so something to think on there and you can see guys why I say chapter 9 is so rich every sentence here you could dig out and do a full sermon so here we have Ananias talking back to the Lord conversing with him and we have a God who says look I will choose the most unlikely of people and use them as my instrument and they will suffer frankly if they're doing their job properly as a result of it but he's still going to be with us and he still loves us church so don't worry then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, key thing, and after taking food, he regained his strength. Another thing here, which I find really interesting about this Ananias 
Saul encounter is, you know, God could have had, it's maybe probably what I want to get to is just how us as believers and as a fellowship and as a church, we are all dependent upon one another. God is using each and every one of us in our lives to enact his purposes. You have Saul here who's been rendered blind for three days, who's here waiting on the Lord, doesn't know if he's going to get his sight back, whatever. And yet the Lord in another part of town, uh, or city rather, is communicating with an, a, a fellow but a fellow believer at this point. I guess you can say Paul is a convert or certainly on his way there and says, look, I need you to come in and go meet with your brother Saul, you know, your brother in faith Saul, and, and through, you know, my Holy Spirit empowerment, heal him of his eyesight and, and give your message to him. And you can see that people are working in tandem together. God could have just removed the scales from Saul's eyes himself just while Saul was there with his troops of men, you know, with him. And yet he got another brother to come into Saul's life and help him and relieve him of his ailment. So I think there's a lot in there about how the Christian walk is interdependent. The Lord might have a word for someone else in Grace Vineyard Church, just as an example that he gives to you, that you need to go and give to them. Or someone in Grace Vineyard Church might be suffering with something, might be blind or or in, in in a different manner you know maybe they're short of something or they need some assistance and it's for you to go over there much like Ananias did and go and find your soul and bring relief where you can I really like this it's a, just a little picture of interdependency and how the Lord enacts his purposes through different um people with it you know through our brothers and sisters in Christ together and it's not just a lonely one person road our faith but it's a corporate faith so then we see now Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. How simple a gospel message is that, right? Gang, we can overcomplicate this gospel. Million, you know what I mean? Like we can add more to it. We can add, take, you know, detract from it. We can get worried that it has to be a three minute presentation or we need to get these key factors in. He just preached Jesus is the son of God. And there's a trillion implications in that those six five six words but that's it spent several days with disciples and he just got to it got to it guys there was none of this kind of um i need to go to seminary or i need to be affirmed i mean he was he was with the disciples you know you don't want new converts suddenly going out and representing the church and then making a hash of it but you know what i mean he just went straight to it with that same zeal he had for judaism or old testament judaism he now hit the streets to go and preach christ christ crucified Jesus is the son of God. All who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc? I love that. In Jerusalem, obviously I don't love the havoc he raised, I just like that phrase, who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful. His power levels were rising and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving Jesus is the Messiah. Now, isn't that great that his actual with his own personal test his own personal actions then became a testimony for the lord because his transformation was so dramatic and you can see now why the lord says saul is my chosen instrument was so dramatic that people people you know people stood and you know people just taken aback by it and could not believe it and i think there's real merits you know i'm always glad whenever i meet converts you know everyone always wants to know about everyone's conversion story and i i you know i love it you know, it's always really good when people say, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and I always knew the Lord and I guess I made my faith my own when I was 18 or whatever. But I think we all do love those stories when you hear, you feel like you meet like a real bad boy, a real bad girl, the ones who are sleeping around or taking drugs or lied and stole or, you know, the ones with the really 
the really licentious backstories, the really exciting ones who sound like they're from an episode of EastEnders. Love hearing from those people. And Saul is probably like the chief amongst them, right? Mass murderer, uh, blasphemer, killer, just an absolute mad lad when it came to the bloodshed. And yet now he's turned around so quickly that people are like, wow, this must be, this must be the Lord. And, and I think also what's really interesting is a, you can see here, and I guess this is an obvious point, a real encounter with the Lord changes you. You can't encounter the risen Jesus, whether he speaks to you audibly, whether it's an impression, whether it's reading the scriptures. You cannot have a risen encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and just go back to business as usual. It has to be so obvious on you that others, non-Christians, those who are at work, those who encounter you, the way you say thank you to the delivery drivers who are giving you social distancing, food drop-offs, there's something different about you. And Saul is an example of this. Something changed. Something changed in this man to the point where people, um, where people realised something was something was afoot here, something was missing, the way he carried himself and the things he was saying. Another thing here, which is just an interesting um, verb here, is it says, uh, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Proving, I thought, was an interesting word. I don't know if that's consistent across all the biblical translations. This is NIV. Excuse me. But proving is an interesting word because you can preach. He preaches here, you know, just literally lets the text, lets the text just go out and, and lets the Holy Spirit go and convict people. But he also proves he cerebr cerebrally, how embarrassing, can't even pronounce the very word. I very uncerebrally cannot pronounce cerebral. Um, he, let's just use intelligently. Let's just use intelligence gang. It's, it's past 11. I'm not going to try and pretend to be brainier than I am. Um, he proves, he uses human proofs, philosophical proofs, learned proofs, apologetics is the fancy word, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So he preaches, lets the scriptures do the talking, but he also uses apologetics um, to prove Jesus is the Messiah. Because some audiences need that right they need you to answer difficult questions on i don't know evolution or, or creationism or uh you know why does love exist or why does suffering exist slightly more philosophical questions which aren't necessarily answered by scripture although scripture is important so it's really interesting he gives them kind of the one-two punch the one-two punch punch one is preaching punch two is proving um to, to um on behalf of the lord you can tell it's getting a little bit late, gang. Excuse me for that. And so, um, yes, yeah, so, so I found that really interesting. That he's also proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Again, let's go back to my first point from his sermon. The worst you and I have to deal with is embarrassment. Saul is basically public enemy number one and has a hit out on him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. This is mad. And this is one of my great things I'm always saying to people when I talk about the Bible is, is that there are just these mad stories in the Bible, which are epic. You could do whole feature films about like this one sentence. His followers took him by night, right? Bundled him in somewhere, lowered him in a basket, right? That's mad as well. And and in through an opening in the wall. I don't know how high this opening was. I don't know how high or high elevated he was, I guess, if the top of the city gates. That's insane. Think about that. That's basically an Alton Towers ride where you start at the top and then get sort of dropped to the bottom. And he hid in the basket. This great man of faith basically just basically turned into a human hovis loaf and was kind of just let down 
in the basket. Mad story. No one ever talks about this. I've never seen anyone make much of this sentence, but it's probably my favourite sentence in this whole story. His followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Even men of the Lord, even disciples who'd gone through everything that they'd gone through with the Lord Jesus when he was on this earth, were afraid. Isn't that really interesting that these people who'd seen it all, seen a risen Jesus, were afraid still. And I guess that shows that for all these greats of the faith that you read about in Acts, they're still just humans at the end of the day. Not believing he really was a disciple, but Barnabas, good old Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learnt of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Gang, I kind of want to leave it there now. That, you know, there is more. You can hear about what Peter got up to in the rest of chapter 9, but I think there's enough in verses 1 to 31 for you to chew over this week. And I hope it really encourages you really, I guess on three points, if I had to really take three points from this, and perhaps you can discuss this in groups, or if there's no time for groups now, I don't quite know if I've overrun or not, but really to think about number one, that there is no one who's beyond redemption by the Lord, you know, by the Lord. There's no one, not even someone like a Paul, who we we think of as like this great evangelist and teacher and preacher, but was completely something else as we've learnt. No one's beyond that. Number two is that your Paul, I don't think I've probably laboured this as much as I usually like, but you are Paul. You're not much better or cuter than he was just because you didn't murder anyone. You were just as heinous whilst you were still a sinner. You know, Christ was sent to you. You know, God loved you so much that whilst you were still a sinner, he sent Christ. You also were a Paul in your own way before you came to the Lord. So also, I hope you see a bit of Saul in you as well. When you understand that the Lord saved you from the depths of your sin and you weren't particularly pretty or impressive, frankly, um, and you probably weren't zealous for Judaism or any other religion before this, right? You were living your own way in your own manner, and yet the Lord saved you. So not only can the Lord save the most unlovely, you were amongst that un the unlovely. And I guess point three is that go and preach that gospel. Go and preach that gospel, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if it makes the people you're preaching it to uncomfortable. You see all through Acts, you see all through this chapter that you know, Jesus did come to give us life and life in abundance, but we're to expect suffering. We're to expect persecution. We're here to preach and prove quite simply those six words. Don't know if I can scroll to it, that Jesus is the son of God. It's really, it's really simple, gang. That's it. That's all we need to be telling people. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus is the son of God. So I hope that this little chapter nine has been useful to you. I hope it's got you thinking again and reappraising how you think of Paul. Maybe you've got a few souls in your life, people you think who are not beyond redemption. Obviously, we all know that God can save them, but you know, people who you're really praying for, and that's something you can pray for in a bit, I suppose, are people in our lives where we feel are maybe so far from God and we can't believe that the Lord can break down those strongholds and, and bring them into the fold. But you may find they're the chosen instruments that the Lord can use to spread his gospel. And in fact, I think that'd be a really encouraging prayer for us to pray right now is that for each of us to, um, in fact, I'll close us in prayer for us to think about one person in our life who is we pray and ask and plead with the Lord uses that the Lord uses them as his chosen instrument to spread his name just like he did Saul.
So gang, I'm just going to pray for us now and then we can go back into listening to worship music. Dear Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a good God. You're an active God. You're a loving God. You're a powerful and sovereign God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you haven't promised us an easy life, but you have very kindly blessed us with a wonderful life of safety and plenty here in Britain. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. We do not deserve it. We, we, we don't deserve it at all. Lord. Frankly, each and every one of us deserves to go to hell. And yet you have sovereignly and kindly chosen each and every one of us like you chose Saul and elected us and saved us for your glory. You're a good God and we love you dearly. Thank you, Lord, for our church family. Thank you, Lord, for everyone here at Grace Vineyard. And Lord, just pray each and every one of us has a soul in our lives who we really pray for and we really want to come to know you lord and we just pray lord that you would choose that person who's in each of our heads and hearts and our prayers right now and make them your chosen instrument for your glory thank you lord jesus thank you lord for the church thank you lord for mark and jill thank you lord for your scriptures and for acts chapter 9 amen